Hey everybody, Scott Malcolm here from Money Mechanics. Just a quick message to say, any information that we share during this podcast is general information only. Please do not act on that information without considering the appropriateness towards your specific needs and outcomes. Ideally, we suggest that you go and meet with a financial planner and get personal advice. Hi folks, welcome to another episode of Looking Under the Hood where we are unpacking all the money stuff. My name's Scott Malcolm and I'm a financial planner by trade. Today we're going to be talking about probably the one thing that people really don't like talking about that makes them feel a little bit uncomfortable and that's death. I'm being joined today by estate planning solicitor and specialist, uh, Rebecca Tetlow from Tetlow Legal in Canberra. And we're going to be talking about and unpacking everything to do with estate planning, your plan B, your backup plan, and, and why this is such an important part of your overall financial decision-making framework. Hi, Rebecca. How are you going? Hi, Scott. Thanks for having me. I know this is a tricky issue for some people to talk about, but it's an area that I'm passionate about. You would see, like we probably do in the financial planning space, the, the good, the bad, the, uh, the indifferent when it comes to the estate planning stuff. But I guess before we start on that journey, uh, putting you on the spot as well, but I've been asking all my guests, what, what's one of your early memories when it comes to, to money? Like, what's one of your early happy memories or joyous memories when it, when it comes to the money stuff? Mm, this is a fun question. My father runs his own business uh, as a scale mechanic, fixing scales in Hobart not a money mechanic, a scale mechanic, and dotted around Hobart, he has a number of antique scales that people put 20 cents in and can then weigh themselves, so in shopping centres or the bus station, that sort of thing. And from as long as I can remember, every three or six months we would go around to all of the scales and collect the coins that were in the scales empty out the random things that people had tried to shove down the chute to block the scale and then take the, the big bucket of money back to his workshop, tip all the 20-cent coins out on the bench and then start sorting them into the little plastic cash bags to then take to the bank. And it was always such a fun experience. Dad would usually save it for the school holidays so I could do it with him and it was such a fun experience. Firstly, going around the different shops or areas around Hobart talking to people as, as we emptied the scales um, and then that sort of community feel of going back and sorting out all of the coins on the, the kitchen bench and um, I'd usually be lucky to collect the, the five and ten cent coins that um, were strays that I could then spend on whatever I wanted. Uh, so it was just a really fun experience as a kid. Yeah, that, that's great. And and look, the reason I ask those questions to people coming along and, and for our listeners to reflect and think about some of those is that we, we've all had different lived experience when it comes to money. And, and again, some of those are, are joyful and happy and fun and playful memories like the one that you've just described. And some of those other ones could be a bit more painful and uh, a bit more uncomfortable. And and I guess you probably see some of that discomfort on the, the financial side uh, a little bit when it comes mm. to the estate planning question. And look, professionally, I always find it's one of the biggest areas where I see clients have a bit of a block uh, with doing it in that new clients will roll into my office. We as a standard process say, have you got your wills? Have you got an estate plan? Have you got an enduring power of attorney? And 
for some people, again, you'll, they'll be saying, what, what do all these things mean? And I'm like, well, that's why Rebecca's here today to, to help unpack this. Do you find a similar thing like in, in your practice and what you do? Yeah, absolutely. My observation from the years that I've been doing this is that, you know, to generalise what we're like as a community, I think we're actually really uncomfortable talking about death. We don't like to think about our own death. And it's really interesting that considering the amount of time that we spend thinking about money, we spend so much of our lives thinking about how to earn money, how to get the most out of our money, how to make money last and how to make ends meet. Considering the amount of energy that we spend thinking about money, comparatively, we spend so little time thinking about what happens to that money after our death. And from talking to clients, I think a lot of clients take the attitude of sort of shrug their shoulders and think, well, after I've died, I'm not here to worry about it, so why do I need to deal with it? But the reality is that it is going to be a source of stress for your family. And even if you're not worried about it when the time comes, nine times out of ten your family is going to be thinking about what's happening to that money. And for better or for worse, money and emotions are tied up together. And in a lot of cases, issues around what happens to a person's estate and how they divide their their wealth after they have died um, does get caught up in the emotions of the family. I often say to people, like, we are merely custodians of the stuff while we are on this planet. And by the stuff, I mean money. There's plenty of it out there and, and individually we, we go through our life and we, we collect it, we acquire it, we spend it, we use it, we, we enjoy it hopefully as well, but we, we build it up and so we're, we're merely custodians of that stuff. And so the estate planning uh, element and, and thinking about your backup plan, I often say to people, is really about thinking, well, where do you want that to go after you're done with it? Yes. It's actually thinking about the, the legacy side of things as well. So I don't know if you've seen it as well, but often find where clients have been through, say, a, a health scare or a, a cancer diagnosis or, or a, a chronic condition, they'll basically, it will become front of mind uh, for them and mm. they'll start to think about it in, a, in that different context. So let's unpack firstly, the uh, probably the more basic uh, elements in that. And I'll let you guide the conversation in this regard as well, Rebecca, being your, your expertise. But what are some of the, the things you see if, if people have just not worried about doing a will, not worried about their estate plan? Where, where do the troubles lie or what comes up in, in that space? The starting point is that if someone has not made a will at all, then the law sets out what happens to their money after they have died. So sometimes I, I talk to people who take this attitude of, well, my family will know what I want and they'll just sort it out amongst themselves. Unfortunately, that kind of attitude doesn't gel with what the law says and the law is really clear about who receives your assets if you die without a will and that's what's called the laws of intestacy. They do vary a little bit between each state and territory but usually if you have a partner and children there's an allocation between your partner or your children uh, and if you don't have a partner or children then it goes to parents or siblings or, or further relatives. And the rules of intestacy can have a really awkward outcome in some circumstances. And in particular, if you are a couple who have children, then in most states the law says there's a division of your assets between your partner and children. 
And that might be okay if you're in a blended family. But I know for me personally, if my husband died and I had to divide the savings that we had between um, me and my two young children, it would probably put me in financial stress. And most of the clients that I see would want all of their money to pass to their partner who can then look after the children rather than there being a forced division. It fascinates me that it is still, I guess, state-based legislation and that there are nuances between the states in in this regard. I agree that the state-based legislation is a source of headache and, you know, considering that Australians regularly move between states and, you know, spread their lives across states, then uh, it's interesting how that can have such a different impact depending on where you are. The other kinds of relationships where intestacy can have really difficult outcomes is for couples who have separated but not yet divorced. So if they're still legally married or still legally in a civil partnership but haven't yet divorced, then their uh, estranged partner can be eligible on intestacy. And also for single people who might be estranged from one parent or estranged from a child, then the rules of intestacy can see assets go to people that they wouldn't want to benefit. So, I mean, sometimes doing a will is driven from the desire to see your wealth go where you want it to. But the other strong reason to do a will is to make things easier for your family. Yeah, and I guess grief is one of those really, really strange things. And look, I've honestly in my family, I've I've seen clients in their families have similar things where people have died there. They might have been the cornerstone to that relationship. And so the minute they're gone, then all of a sudden the siblings are then, I know, remembering their childhood and oh, you got more love than I did. And oh, I want, I want to try and hang on to this part of of the parents or whoever it was. And so that sort of, I guess, grief overlay can then make people behave in very, very different ways. That's right. We tend to think of money as this neutral, rational, you know, emotionless currency and yet there is absolutely an overlay of emotions and sometimes beneficiaries or would-be beneficiaries can look at a will and perceive that it's a tool of reward or punishment or um, inequality or unfairness. Mm. Are there ways, I've had clients in the past where say they they don't speak to children anymore or children have disowned them or vice versa because of of life changing and relationship breakdown. So what can you do strategically to try and manage that so that someone like yourself doesn't then have that that person contesting the will, uh, which then results in obviously lawyers uh, making some good money and I I, I don't mind uh, lawyers like yourself making money, but it's, I guess, eating into the estate side of things. So are there ways that people can manage some of those those risks and, and strategy as well? Yeah, look, concerns about working through difficulties in a relationship within the family or concerns about whether a challenge can be made against your estate. I see that as an issue for so many clients. In some cases, some clients see that as a real roadblock from them making their will. Being concerned about those relationships can mean that some people put their will in the too hard basket because they don't know how to work through that. Um, Or for other clients, just the reality of talking through those difficulties can be a, a difficult thing to unpack. My advice for people in in that circumstance is 
Firstly, don't put it in the too hard basket. That's a way to cause more angst and dispute after your death. And to get advice around what's the risk of a claim against your estate in your particular circumstances. I find that the area of potential claims against an estate is one of those topics where um, everyone turns into a bit of a coffee shop lawyer and that plenty of people have stories about relatives or friends or people that they know who have had an experience of an estate dispute. But this is an area where each family needs to be considered on its own basis. And if I'm helping a client work through how do they make their will where they are estranged from a child, then I would be unpacking with them what would be the basis on which a client could make a claim against their estate. Um, So looking at is that person eligible to make a claim against their estate after death, unpacking the reasons why that child might be estranged, is it appropriate to leave a statement explaining how that estrangement came about, perhaps leaving a statement setting out the background of any financial support or financial independence to um, put on record what the financial relationship has been like between the parent and child. And then in some cases there are opportunities to structure your assets so that assets pass outside of your estate to then minimise the assets that are in your estate that can be claimed against. Yeah, and open, honest communication is really key, I think, in, in any of these conversations. It is talking mm. about the stuff that we don't we don't feel comfortable with necessarily. Like let's talk about death. What happens if if you or your partner have died? Like map it, like map it out, get a piece of paper, go, right, okay, this is the outcome that we want. Don't think about dollar values, think about outcomes, paying mm. off mortgages, paying out debt providing for children's education, providing for organisations or charities that you you believe in or whatever that may be, or creating a legacy that, that you might want to do. So there's, there's ways that you can actually turn this into a really nice light and creative process as well. The key with that stuff as well is then getting the right strategy in place because, as Rebecca was just saying there, there's estate assets and then there's non-estate assets. So superannuation is is one of those areas that that sits out of a, a state law and so again it becomes a bit of a complexity and we'll do a show on the the superannuation stuff because I'm a, a super geek but Rebecca what where does the sort of estate and the non-estate assets come from like why is that there yeah so it, your will only deals with those assets that are in your sole name and it comes as a surprise to a lot of my clients that your will doesn't deal with assets that are owned as joint tenants So lots of couples in particular own their home as joint tenants and that means the property automatically passes to the survivor upon death rather than forming part of your estate. It's also possible to have joint bank accounts or own shares in joint names. A will doesn't deal with superannuation and for so many Australians, super and the life insurance within super is their major asset and it can come as a real surprise to learn that regardless of what their will says, it might not necessarily impact where the super goes. So whenever I'm meeting with a client to talk about their will, I'm not just looking at their will, I'm also looking at their super. What fund are they a member of? With some funds, especially in Canberra, we have a number of defined benefit schemes like CSS or PSS where the fund says where your super is going to go and you're not able to deal with that, you're not able to have a nomination. 
For most other um, for most other clients that have retail or industry funds looking at can you put in place a binding death benefit nomination? Is it a good idea to do that? If so, who are you nominating? Should you nominate a spouse or children directly? Or do you nominate your estate, which then channels the super into your estate to be dealt with by the terms of your will? Yeah, and and all those elements have different tax consequences. So then I get to put my uh, finance geek hat on and go, what are we trying to do here? But are you actually aware if you pass that that super money on to a non-dependent child, an adult child? Um, And so that's where splitting up the assets of an estate, if you've got a child who's a a minor still under 18 and you've got a child who's, who's over 18, if you're giving them the same lump of money, after tax, it could actually end up being a, a different amount of money because of that um, dependency. So there's lots of little uh, tips and traps when it comes to just mapping all those those little elements out. And Scott, I find that that's a particular challenge for people in a blended family or in second relationships to work out how do we look after our partner? How do we look after our children from a first relationship? And that's where we do actually need to really roll up our sleeves and look at what are the assets within this family? What can we deal with by the will? And what what else do we need to be looking at outside the will? Because for a lot of families, if they own their family home as joint tenants and they have superannuation, that might be the bulk of their assets, which is operating outside the space of the will. And that's why it's so critical to take a global approach to estate planning and not just looking at what does the will say. <music> I don't want to badmouth people, but I've often had clients say, oh, yeah, I just got a, a will from the conveyancing solicitor who just threw it in as a free little add-on as a part of our uh, property uh, purchase process. So I said, oh, do you have a will? No, okay, we'll just bang together a, a simple will for you. And that can actually be, a, a again, uh, more dangerous than, than good potentially if they haven't unpacked all the, the areas. And um, I guess that opens up for litigation and other um, challenges down the track as well. So I think that's where getting that good advice is really important. Yeah, I spend a lot of time talking to clients about um, the fact that it's not just having a document that's the key thing. It's not just having a will, but what's the advice that's gone into creating that will? So what what's the strategy around the choice of executors and the division of the estate? Are we dealing with all of the assets that sit outside of the estate? And I I find that that is where problems arise for people that try and do their own wills. In the past, we talked about newsagent will kits, and but now there's so many online products where people can make their will online. And while it's usually a good idea to have a will rather than no will, if if there's an inappropriate strategy that's gone into creating the will, it is just going to still create headaches down the track. Unfortunately, part of my practice is helping resolve disputes that arise after someone has died and I'm seeing an increasing number of inquiries from people where a person has died and has left a will that they prepared themselves and sometimes those wills aren't properly signed or properly witnessed and there's sometimes a way to get those wills that haven't been signed properly. We can get them approved as an informal will, but that's a complicated court process. And even if the will has been properly signed or witnessed, it might be that the will 
hasn't dealt with all of the assets that sit outside of the estate or haven't really considered the objectives from that global perspective and I guess, yeah, that they've missed the benefit of professional advice and it's that situation of not knowing what you don't know. I guess the hard parts then are around who do you nominate, like executors, enduring powers of attorney, for guardianship if, if you've got children. I guess there are all those, again, probably things that stop people in their tracks when they go, oh, we want to put our wills together, but have you got any tips yeah. on that front? I mean, I guess I always often talk from my perspective. I've um, shout out to my uh, brother and, and sister-in-law. Please don't uh, leave, leave the planet sooner than we need. But myself and my uh, sister-in-law's brother are both executors and, and then guardians for their kids if, if need be. And so, look, I would happily step up to that plate to, to do that. But I could also reject that, couldn't I, at, at the time? So how do you go about picking those people? How do you go mm-hmm. about thinking about some of those things? Yeah, the role of decision makers is really critical and and you've actually touched on three quite separate and distinct roles. So you mentioned the executors, the people who step into your shoes after your death to carry out the terms of the will. So their job is to gather in your assets, pay out liabilities from your estate assets and then distribute the assets according to your will. And often the executors are then doing things like arranging the sale of properties or working out at what times to make distributions to beneficiaries. And if you've got beneficiaries who are under 18, they might also be managing money for those beneficiaries until they reach 18. The key qualities that I think you want in an executor are for them to be trustworthy you know, are they the type of person that you would leave your wallet with? Are they organised enough to get the job done? Now, they don't have to be experts in estate law. They can ask a lawyer to help them with that. But you don't want someone that's going to crumple at the side of life admin. And the third aspect with the choice of executors is if you are appointing more than one person and you can appoint more than one person, you just want to make sure that they can get along and work together There's a lot of advantages to appointing multiple people. You know, there's a sharing of the load. There's a check and a balance. You know, if you're appointing your children as executors, if they're over 18, then it's nice for them to have a say and input into the way that the estate's managed. But don't set them up to fail by appointing people who aren't going to get along. I often say to clients, this is not a popularity contest with your children choose the people who are best suited to the role. The other roles that you mentioned, Scott, are the role of guardians for minor children. I would say that guardianship is the biggest roadblock to parents of small children making wills. And, you know, I have to confess that this was a roadblock for me with my own will, updating it after having children. And despite me having all of the head knowledge about guardianship, it was still emotionally a difficult decision to work through. So the guardian or the guardians are the people who would care for your children and make decisions about their long-term welfare, such as where they go to school or what kind of medical treatment they receive or who they have contact with. Now, that may or may not be the same person that you want to manage money for your children. In some families, there are really clear standout people that you would want to look after the children and the money for the children. In other families, the person that you want to care for your children 
you might not think is the best financial choice. And so I would work through that with clients to get the right people in the right roles. The third type of person that you mentioned before, Scott, is attorneys or guardians. Sorry, I'm using guardians in a different sense now. One of the things I always talk about with clients when talking about their wills is not just what happens on death, but also planning for what would happen in the event that you became incapacitated while you're alive and couldn't make decisions for yourself. And that might be because you've developed dementia. It might be because you've been in an accident and have a brain injury um, or any other kind of condition, which means you can no longer make decisions for yourself. And that applies to 18, just to jump in there, but 18-year-olds. So I've seen clients who have still got, say, early 20s children living at home, and I often say to them, make sure you talk to them about it and make sure they've got, especially enduring power of attorney in play, even if they don't have much in asset, if they've got a little bit of super or whatever it might be, but enduring power of attorney is so important. What what happens if if that's not in play? If you don't have an enduring power of attorney, there's no one that has automatic authority to make decisions for you if you can't make them yourself. And so if you're involved in an accident and can no longer make decisions for yourself, then the tribunal um, in the ACT, it's the ACAT or in Victoria, it's VCAT, would would have to make a decision appointing a guardian and financial manager for you. And that means that all of a sudden you've got an independent tribunal making a decision for you about who's looking after you and your your finances. Yeah, and I often say, look, my, my parents are career public servant, were career public servants, now retired and amazing people, but you don't want public servants or people in those those roles making those decisions for you if you can uh, avoid yeah. it. So, yeah. so it, this is another area where the terminology is different between states and there's different forms. In the ACT, we have an enduring power of attorney that covers financial decisions as well as healthcare and personal decisions. In New South Wales, they are two separate documents with power of attorney dealing with finances and enduring guardian dealing with healthcare. I think in Victoria, there is the choice of three separate documents. So it's really important to get advice in the state that you're in. But in choosing who you want to be a decision maker for you, you want someone trustworthy. Again, would you leave your wallet with them? Um, You also want someone who is respectful of your wishes and values. If you can't make the decision about where you live or who you spend time with or what kind of medical treatment you receive, you don't have to appoint someone that necessarily has the same views as you but someone who is going to respect your views and make a decision as close as possible to what you would make yourself. Yeah, so it's just making sure that those people you're appointing have got that values alignment, as you say, and that you've you've had open, honest conversations with them about those things, and you've you've tested that, yeah, they're they're that sort of person that's going to be there and and have my back mm. in that situation. So, yeah. and you can absolutely leave directions in your enduring power of attorney about how you want certain decisions to be made. So some people use it as a bit of an advanced care plan, or to leave expressions of wishes about, um, you know, their views about residential aged care or end-of-life decisions, but there's no substitute for talking to your family about what your wishes would be 
yeah, having even a, a family conference or just like having dinner with your family and going, right, we've spoken to our solicitor or to a financial planner and we've we've started that that process of estate planning and we want you to come along on that journey with us because again, the worst surprise is gonna be the moment you've you've died and then all of a sudden, wait, where's the will? Oh, what does the will say? Oh, yeah, where's everything going? And so it's about having a plan, it's about having a framework. And I often say to people, have the hard conversation, do the hard yards, but get it documented, sit down with someone like Rebecca and go through the process of, of that holistic view. Um, and then you can file it away for the most part and get on with enjoying life. Yeah, just to add to what you were saying, Scott, I can see a, a, a physical weight of people's shoulders after they have finalised their estate planning. I see clients walk out of my office with a spring in their step because they've taken care of that thing that was in their hard basket. It will give you peace of mind. It means that your family are going to be in a better position to sort through a difficult circumstance when you do die. And in most cases, the reasons that you are putting off doing your estate planning, it won't be as bad as you think it will be. There will be a pathway to work through those roadblocks. And with the right advice, you will be able to work through and end up with an estate plan that will just give you peace of mind. And look, if you've done your estate planning before, great, good for you. The next thing is making sure that you're reviewing it regularly. So I usually recommend get out the copy of your will every couple of years, read through it and ask yourself, is this still doing what you want it to? What have been the changes in your family? What have been the changes in your financial circumstances? And if your will no longer reflects what you want to do, then make sure that you update it when it's needed. Yeah, definitely. And and even with, with single people, I saw a, a client recently, they've got an enduring power of attorney and it had four different people as optional powers of attorney on there. And two of them no longer, like they have no longer have a relationship with those people. And so it is really important to make sure that you're regularly reviewing that and that it does keep up with your needs. Grief is always one of those things. I guess death is coming for all of us, uh, unfortunately, as, as much as we'd like to uh, wrangle our way away out of it. And having a, a good estate plan just means that people and, and family and friends that are in the uh, your circle can continue on with their life and, and grieving process as smoothly as possible. So thanks again so much, Rebecca, for coming along today and uh, great to, to share your expertise and, uh, and insights. Thanks, Scott. It's been a pleasure.